Welcome back to another episode of the To The Moon Podcast, hosted by Corey and Aon. Today, we have a very special guest, Cassandra Hatton, Vice President and Global Head of Department of Science and Pop Culture at Sotheby's. Welcome to the show, Cassandra. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a true, true honor to have you on our podcast. And I'm so excited to get into our conversation. Before we get started, we have a quick few announcements that we need to make. So I'll hand it over to you, Corey. Hi, all. Corey here. And a quick update on Moondow. I'm so pleased to announce that fundraising has closed at Moondow. We have raised a mind-blowing $8.3 million. Moondow now has thousands of contributors who own the Mooney governance token. And I'm speechless, I'm humbled, and I'm so grateful to the faith that our contributors have in Moondow. And um, more news. Following our second meeting with Blue Origin, um, we're very happy to report that we have secured a soft reservation of more than one ticket on Blue Origin's new Shepard rocket in 2022. And so in 2022, Moondow will go to space and we will be making history. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so Cassandra, uh, as you heard, there's a lot of exciting things happening at Moondow. And a lot of what we're doing right now wouldn't have been possible without your help. So for our listeners who don't know who you are, could you tell us a little about your background and what you do at Sotheby's? Sure. I am a vice president and the global head of the science and popular culture department. I'm also a senior specialist in space exploration, the history of science and technology, books and manuscripts, natural history or anything from dinosaurs to meteorites, um, popular culture such as hip-hop, etc. But my kind of core specialties where I really started out was 17th century scientific books and manuscripts and um, space exploration. So I've, I've been running annual space exploration auctions for going on nine years now, where I've had the privilege to work directly with Apollo, Mercury, Gemini, astronauts, handle items that played key roles in the missions, things that were on the moon that flew in space that belonged to these astronauts. So uh, it's a pretty exciting job. Uh, and hearing about moon Dow, I was like, I can't believe that this Dow exists. It's, you know, you get excited when you meet other people who have interests that are aligned with yours and especially with um, this new world where we have Dow's forming and, and collectives of people who are all excited and passionate about similar things. It was, uh, so cool to 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 be connected with you all not and it hasn't been very long it hasn't been very long ago since we've all been connected i feel like this has all moved very quickly so listeners i i have to say cassandra is genuinely one of the best storytellers uh, i've ever met and she isn't just she hasn't listed all her accolades and and all the sort of record setting sales that she's made. I hope that we can sort of, and I'm not gonna like make it awkward and just list them out for her right now. But <laughs> through the, throughout this conversation, I hope we can touch on some of them. And I've been waiting for this podcast. I've been hoping for it for since I met Cassandra and literally got zero sleep last night. I was texting our Discord at like 4.20 a.m. Um, but where I'd like to start is, well, really, to tell the story of Moondow, you have to say the name Cassandra Haddon, because I don't think we would be where we are 
had the interactions with Cassandra not happened. And um, here's an extra bit that you might not know, Cassandra. I reached out to you maybe in the first week of Moondow's life. So when you say it hasn't been very long, actually, you were there before a lot of our key contributors were about. So with that in mind, wow, <laughs> exactly. Can you share what you remember of your first interaction with Moondow and maybe the relationship that followed? Sure. Um, it was, it would have been in December of 2021. I came to the office and um, my administrator had, had taken a message from, I think it was you, Corey, and said, you know, there's somebody calling from something called Moondow <laughs> who wants to talk to you about meteorites or something like that. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give them a call. And what started out as a conversation about meteorites turned into something completely different. I think um, neither of us was expecting to have the conversation that we had, but it was, I think it was a super fun conversation. I hope you thought it was a super fun conversation, Corey, but I ended up going off on storytelling about collecting space, space exploration, artifacts, things that are flown in space, you know, how to tell the difference between a moon rock and a meteorite. And, and um, it just kind of went from there. And I think early on, you were, your focus was slightly different, I think. You were considering buying artifacts. And then um, it seems the focus shifted pretty quickly to the democratization of space exploration and conversations started turning around. Well, how do we, how do we do this? Who do we go with? And I, um, at some point had shared that I, you know, know the team at Blue Origin quite well. So connected you all and here we are, you guys are going up guys and, and gals and, um, that's exciting. I'm so excited for, for Moondow to be going up there. And, and I just you know that the mission is something that I think is really important. You know, it, um, space exploration is for everyone. It's, and when you think of the Apollo 11, moon landing, the, the first time humanity had set foot on the moon. That was the only time that I can think of in human history where everybody was paying attention for a good reason. You know, there have been other events in human history where everybody was paying attention, but it was for a bad reason, you know, a war, bombing, some other kind of horrible tragedy and uh, the moon landing was an entirely different thing. It was a unifying thing. So it's, it's really exciting to see a group like this aligning with what space exploration means for humanity. So, so true. I mean, I remember reading that 650 million viewers worldwide watched the first steps on the moon and that was in 1969 650 million people i can't imagine the number of eyes we'll get if something like that is achieved today but on the conversation we had you know that really gave us ammo for the grind that came after there is still like a document called cassandra haddon with all the notes that I took from that single conversation. And it's a pretty, like, it's a chunky, chunky document, but it's actually such a fun read. Maybe I'll, sh maybe I'll share with you, <laughs> it with you at some point. But um, just the amount of content in that one conversation, just for me, gave Moondow security, I felt, knowing that we, we had some armor in maybe dealing with Christie's or, or another 
uh, auction house. And uh, yeah, so I really do have to say a big thank you to you. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I, I think this is evidenced by the, the notes. Once you get me going talking about space, I'm not going to stop. So <laughs> I was thrilled to have somebody on the phone who really was excited to hear what I was talking about and, um, you know, another enthusiastic um, this area. So uh, this is fantastic. It's amazing. Yeah. You and know. I, I, cause I, I remember the, in the early days of Moondow when we just started and Corey told me, oh yeah, he's, he's uh, contacting someone from Sotheby's and mm. uh, he, he told me a little bit about you. And I remember after his call, he came to my room and he was just glowing about uh, his conversation <laughs> with you. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I went to that. So you are sort of the world's expert in, on, well, one of the world's experts on space mm. exploration artifacts. And yeah. um, one of the things we want to do early on in Moondow was buy a piece of the moon. So mm -hmm. could you talk us through like the fascinating world of space exploration artifacts? Sure. It's a pretty, it's a really interesting world. The regulations are really fascinating. Um, there's buying a piece of the moon. So what does that mean? Um, you could buy a meteorite, which would be a piece of the moon that broke off long ago, went flying around space, and then came hurtling down to the Earth and you know, was discovered by someone on the ground and then tested to determine that the, the contents were consistent with lunar regolith. Um, so that's one way to obtain a piece of the moon. And it's the most possible way, <laughs> most accessible way. The other way is to obtain regolith, and, and regolith would be you know small pebbles, rocks, dust that comes directly from the lunar surface. That's almost impossible to get because there have only been two entities that have landed on the lunar surface, and that's the United States during the Apollo missions. And the Russian, uh, well, the USSR, now the Russian Federation, the USSR, uh, I think many people don't realize, also landed on the moon, but they didn't land any humans. They sent a series of unmanned robotic probes, Luna 16, Luna 20, and Luna 24. And those probes collected regolith and returned the samples to Earth. So those are the only, you know, Russia and the U.S. are the only two entities that have collected these samples. And those samples belong to Russia and the United States. The U.S. gave samples as gifts to governments, other world governments. Uh, these samples are known as the Goodwill Moon Rocks. There were some samples that were loaned to institutions, uh, scientific institutions for study, but they're loaned. And the United States government has never, ever, ever, ever given a sample of lunar to any individual in their personal capacity. So there's no private person who owns a sample of the moon that was collected during the Apollo missions. So what this means is that if a person is in possession of a moon rock, it's stolen. <laughs> like to put it very briefly and bluntly, uh, at least in the official legal opinion of the United States government. And there have been plenty of instances where people have somehow obtained a moon rock uh, you know, early on, after the Apollo missions, that there there wasn't any clarity, uh, any guidance given to the Apollo astronauts or the various NASA contractors and subcontractors 
on whether they could keep any samples that they came across. And so there were many instances where somebody's manager said, oh yeah, sure, fine, keep that. You can keep a rock, you can keep a pebble. But none of those people were officially sanctioned or had the official authority of the United States government to do so. So you'll see all sorts of reports of people who had a moon rock and they tried to sell it on eBay or et cetera, et cetera. And they end up getting arrested. The FBI comes out because it is considered theft from the federal government. Um, and then you have the Russian samples and the Russian samples are the same. They belong to the Russians. The Russians gave samples as gifts to different countries and different scientific institutions. However, they did present one sample to a person in their individual capacity. And that person was the widow of a man named Sergei Korolev. Uh, Sergei Korolev is not, he's slightly more known now, but he was the architect of the entire Russian space program. He designed the rockets and the spacecrafts and the suits and everything. He was the genius behind the whole thing. But because the space race was happening during the Cold War, the Russians were terrified that Korolev might be assassinated by the United States. So they kept his identity totally secret. This is a man who dedicated his life to space exploration and could not take any credit or receive any recognition for his contributions during his life. His greatest dream was to land on the moon and collect moon rocks and dust and such and bring it back. He did not live to see that happen. He died, um, I think around 1968, 69, maybe 70, around there. And his, um, you know, once he died, his identity was shared. He received, a, you know, full um, military honors. Um, his ashes were buried in the Kremlin wall, like, you know, a huge state funeral. And the uh, USSR presented his widow with a sample of uh, lunar regolith collected by Luna 16. Now that sample, years and years later, was sold at Sotheby's in 1993. And then I tracked down the buyer of that and resold that sample in 2018. So I'm one of only two people who have ever legally sold moon rocks. Um, and that's an amazing thing because people are just, they're obsessed with the concept of selling moon rocks. You hear this all of the time. I mean, who wouldn't want to sell a moon rock? And it's so interesting because chemically speaking, there isn't a massive difference between the, the content of a lunar meteorite and regolith collected from the lunar surface. But what makes one more valuable than the other, and let's be clear, lunar regolith that's collected from the lunar surface is worth far more than any meteorite. It's because of the journey, because of the association with um, the marvels of engineering that had to be accomplished in order to get humans or the Russian unmanned probes to the lunar surface to collect those samples. So that's one aspect of collecting items related to the moon. Then there's the whole market surrounding the NASA and to a certain extent, the early Russian cosmonauts, but a lot of the collecting is really focused on the Mercury, Gemini and Apollo era astronauts. And, and the Apollo era astronauts really are the most 
the, the artifacts relating to the Apollo missions are the most sought after because they are the most historically significant and that they were the first and, and so far the only lunar landed missions. And those artifacts are really interesting for so many different reasons. And, and they can range from a flown flight plan. You know, and I've sold, I sold the flown flight plan from Apollo 13. I, I could tell you a whole story about that. <laughs> that could take up two hours. Um, I've sold lunar surface checklist sheets from Apollo 11. Um, I've sold, well, I sold the bag that was used by Neil Armstrong to bring back the very first sample of the moon ever collected by a human. I sold that for $1.8 million. Um, and what all of these objects have in common is that they're valuable because they all played a key role in accomplishing the goal of going up to the moon and, and returning the astronauts safely. What is really interesting is that before 2012, there were no laws clarifying whether the astronauts owned these. Kind of similar to the moon rocks, right? Like they, they would come back from the missions. There were some things that were taken off of the, you know, taken out of the, the spacecraft and were cataloged and sent to the Smithsonian. And then there were other items where the astronauts were just allowed to keep them. But there was never anything in writing. And so all the guys kept stuff, all sorts of things. I mean, they were ripping out translational hand controllers from the lunar module and pieces of webbing and netting and all sorts of different things from inside the spacecraft, cue cards, etc. And well, I used to work at another auction house, Bonhams, that, that that's where I started doing space exploration sales. And Ed Mitchell from Apollo 14 had consigned a motion picture camera. It was a Maurer um, style camera that was used on the lunar surface. And one of the things that the astronauts had to do when they were going to reascend from the lunar surface was to jettison as much equipment as possible. So the, the cameras were no longer needed. They kept the film, but they had to throw the cameras on the lunar surface. Uh, anything that was no longer necessary for the mission they were supposed to throw because they needed to make the ascent stage of the lunar module as light as possible so that they could reascend and redock with um, the command module. So if you actually look at the landing sites <laughs> on the lunar surface, it's covered with you know random garbage that we had to leave up there. Um, so Ed decided, well, gee, um, you know, I, I think we'll be fine. This this was Apollo 14. So they, they've already gone through like Apollo 11 and Apollo 12, and they knew that they could re-ascend. Of course, Apollo 13 didn't make it there, so they didn't have that. But they, they knew by then that adding a camera wasn't going to make or break the safety of the mission. So Ed decided to keep it. And he went to consign it at the Bonhams auction. And it got a lot of press and people were really excited and NASA sued him. In 2012, as a result of this, you know, legal kind of tussle with NASA, which by the way, Ed Mitchell wasn't the only astronaut who experienced this. Captain Lovell from Apollo 13 and several other astronauts had similar experiences where they sold things that they believed they had the right to keep and uh, NASA went in and seized several things. So, yes, following these kind of unfortunate situations, President Obama signed into law an act of Congress that clarified that the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo astronauts through ASTP, ASTP is the Apollo-Soyuz test project, which was like the symbolic end of the space race, but those astronauts have clear ownership and full title to any expendable equipment 
from the missions. That law clarified that moon rocks were not included. So it did finally say, okay, sorry guys, moon rocks, moon dust, you don't get to keep them. But everything else, you can. There are some small exceptions. Um, the full spacesuits, they were not allowed to keep. So those are all at the Smithsonian. Their watches, they all wore Omega Speedmasters, stainless steel Omega Speedmasters during uh, the missions. And those are all at the Smithsonian. Um, but other than that, they were allowed to keep basically what they could shove into their pockets. And so now that has really transformed the collecting market for these items. It also means that in order to be able to own, so if I wanted to go buy something that flew on Apollo 12, I have to buy it from an astronaut or I have to buy it from somebody who bought it from an astronaut. Otherwise it's stolen. So the documentation and the provenance for these items is incredibly important. Um, so you'll see things that used to pop up where somebody would say probably flown, maybe flown. <laughs> um, and I take the position is if you can't prove it 100%, and the way to prove it is to get it directly from an astronaut, then, then you really can't say that it is flown. It either is 100% or it's not 100%. So it's a really exciting area. I think that these artifacts, and many of them aren't beautiful, um, you know, it's it's very different than collecting art, for example, you know, sculptures and paintings and, and that sort of thing where there's, um, you know, aesthetics that are involved in the collecting of art. Um, the kinds of people who collect these artifacts really understand their historic and cultural significance. They're not buying them because they're beautiful and they're going to frame them and hang them on the wall. They're buying them because of the role they played in human history. And so it's really exciting for me to get to interact with people like that because we'll sit and we'll have a conversation like we're having right now. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll talk about all the details of different missions and, and really get deep into uh, you know, what happened. And uh, I've found after selling these things for so many years that I've been able to piece together different puzzle pieces of the stories. You know, there have been things that I may have sold one year and then three years later, there's another artifact that kind of completes a part of this story. And I'm now actually, it'll probably take me the rest of my life, but I'm, I'm working on a book about all of the flown flight plans and all of the amazing parts of the story that can be told by these uh, flight plans because they themselves are hilarious. Uh, a lot of the people at NASA were jokesters and if you look at, and you can Google images, but Apollo 12, for example, they had these cuff checklists that the astronauts would wear attached to their arms. On Apollo 11, the checklists were sewn onto the spacesuit, but starting on Apollo 12, it was something that was like clipped their arm. And there was like a little spiral net bound book there. And think, you know, this is, um, a really dangerous mission, right? Like doing an EVA uh, moonwalk extravehicular activity is incredibly dangerous for so many different reasons. You have to pay attention. You need these checklists there to guide you on what you're supposed to be doing. What happens if there's some kind of system uh, failure with your suit or your other equipment? So this is a serious document. But if you Google the Apollo 12 cup checklist, you'll see that NASA thought it would be hilarious to 
interweave between the very serious technical pages pictures of Playboy centerfolds. So, you know, ladies, like naked ladies, basically, with kind of really snarky, goofy um, captions underneath. So there's one of a woman, you know, sitting on a chair and her, um, you know, rear is exposed and it, it says, like, come explore these mountains and, you know, silly things like that. So you have to think of what an unusual time that was. I mean, it was misogynist, but at the same time, you've got this group of people who are risking their lives and tensions are super high. And there's some joker at NASA who injects these kinds of like hilarious things into the very serious documents. So, so I'm, I'm working on a book kind of documenting all of these different flight plans. And um, as I say, it'll probably take me the rest of my life to finish it. <laughs> well, I, I could go on and on about all of these kinds of artifacts, but I think you get the, the picture there. Wow, Cassandra, that was absolutely mind-blowing. I think we all know the relevance and importance of space exploration on the history of man, but few know or have the insight that you have into the space artifact that's evidence of the giant leaps mankind has made. So what's, what's interesting to me is that beyond space exploration artifacts, you're also interested in the world of NFTs. And that's an interesting step that not just you, but all of Sotheby's has taken. This foray into the world of NFTs and a very interesting one that you've sold is an NFT of the source code of the World Wide Web offered directly by Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Could you tell us more about this sale and when that happened? This was last year, last July. First time selling an NFT. And to learn what an NFT was really quickly. Um, but that was um, a really amazing experience, getting to know Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who, who wrote the source code for the World Wide Web and uh, kind of craft the concept for that NFT and, and bring it to market and then see it. It sold for just under five and a half million dollars. So to see the the great response to to that in particular and I, th I think why I really enjoyed working on that NFT is because it existed you know Sir, Sir Tim wrote the source code for the World Wide Web back in 1991 and it's something that couldn't be sold until NFTs came along you know, I, I suppose I could have tried to sell a hard drive with the code on it, but yeah, that's not very compelling, I think, for a lot of people. Um, so NFTs, the concept of an NFT really made it possible to, to sell something like that. Uh, so there's kind of a purity to that NFT and that the content wasn't created with the purpose of it being sold as an NFT. Whereas, you know, there are a lot of NFTs on the market now that people are creating them now with the intention of selling them. So this was a very different kind of thing. Um, and for me and, and what I do, um, I'm always looking for something that hasn't been sold before. Like what's new and what's interesting and what's gonna be hard to figure out. Um, you know, if somebody's already sold it and already done it, it's, you know, I'm just kind of like replicating what they did. And that's really not interesting for me. So, so that was definitely a very new uh, type of thing to sell. There are so many great takeaways. One thing I would love to jump on is this idea of how NFTs, which are a nascent technology, allow us to unlock a piece of the past. Now, the source code for the World Wide Web can be auctioned and owned in a way that wasn't before possible. What's interesting to me is that Sotheby's has jumped on and been at the forefront of this wave of Web3 intersecting with artifact auctions. Um, to me, this makes sense because NFTs are a way of tracking ownership in a decentralized way, and that links to provenance, and that's a core component of the really good work you do. 
we've seen an explosion in a certain type of DAO, the artifact acquisition DAO. And I think that's because there's something beautiful uh, in having a piece of history that's been passed down the generations and eventually being owned communally. And in fact, MoonDAO actually initially started out as an artifact acquisition DAO, where we wanted to buy a slice of the moon from an auction house. And I remember one of the great takeaways from our first conversation was the advice you gave for a DAO dealing with auction houses. In other words, a code of conduct for an artifact acquisition DAO. So if a DAO came up to you now trying to buy an artifact, what advice would you give them? And maybe we could start with private sale or auction. Yeah. There are um, lots of pointers I would give. Uh, the first is, of course, you know, no auction house can actually directly transact with the DAO because of KYC requirements. Like we, it's not because we choose to, but we are required by law to know the identity of all parties involved in a transaction and their source of funds. And this is for, you know, money laundering and anti-terrorist reasons. Like we have to make sure that we're not helping fund ISIS, for example, right? Uh, however, if a DAO forms an LLC, we are able to do business with that entity. Um, you know, that is a single entity that we can do business with. So that is like number one for any kind of DAO that is looking to make acquisitions. That is going to be really, really helpful in being able to transact with anyone. You know, I, I imagine uh, buying tickets with Blue Origin, you're going to need to do something like that because they will also have to do KYC. Um, number two, I would say is to never reveal how much money you're going to spend. Um, just as a general rule, you know, the, the auction houses or dealers need that you have the funds to, to pay for the object, but they don't need to know how aggressively you're going to bid or what number you're going to bid up to. I mean, there are certain instances where, you know, there are clients that I've been working with for, you know, 18 years who really trust me and know that I'm serving their best interest. And they may say, hey, you know, Cassandra, I'm going to go up to 10 million on this, just, you know, whatever. But um, when you're a DAO, because of the more public nature of what you're doing and because you have so many members and it's just, it's so hard to keep that information tight, um, what, what ends up happening is you can get into a bad situation. Um, and if other parties who might be bidding know what your maximum is, um, it, you can end up in a situation that, that puts you at a disadvantage. So it's always best to play it as close to the best as possible when you are bidding at an auction to help ensure that you are going to pay the fairest price. Um, talking about acquiring items at auction versus acquiring items privately, um, there are items where we have sold multiple examples. Like a, a, a great example is a first edition of The Origin of Species. I don't even know how many copies I've sold now. You know, they, they printed 2,500 copies. Uh, they all sold out on the first day. That was uh, June 15th, 1859, or sorry, June 20th, 1859. So we know how many copies were printed. Uh, it's a rare book. It's an important book. Um, and so there are lots of market comparables. You know, somebody calls me today and says, how much do you think my copy is? I can go look at all the other copies that have sold and I can compare it to the others and say, well, this one's in worse condition. It's in better condition, et cetera. And then I rank it according to the others. And that's how we put a price on it. Those are the kinds of items that you can feel confident 
buying privately because you have data to support the price that you're paying for that object. When you are considering acquiring something that's totally unique, it's one of a kind, um, that's a little trickier. How do you know that you're paying a fair price? How do you know that you aren't just paying whatever you know arbitrary number the seller has decided they need? You know, maybe it's I need this much money to pay off my mortgage. Therefore, that's how much I'm asking you to pay for this thing. Those are the objects that are best at auction because that's where you discover the fair market value. Auction is really a great price discovery tool. And, you know, in my own job, when I am offered items, I sell lots of things, but not those things where I don't know. And even I, with, with all the experience and knowing I'm like, I'm, I'm known as the world's leading expert in what I do, I am the first to admit that there are things where I'm like, I don't know what it's worth. I know it's important. I don't know what the asking price is. And so those things I will put in an auction. Um, and this, you know, you think of um, when you're the buyer, you're going to look for reassurance of the value in, in one of two places. And that's going to be previous data points or it's going to be the validation of other bidders. If you see other people bidding and they're, they're willing to bid up above a certain amount, then that tells you that there's a, an agreement amongst other people that this is an important, valuable item. So there are, there are going to be certain things where, um, and I, I have this all the time. I have clients that I advise who, who want to buy totally unusual, rare objects. And they say, well, what should I pay for this, Cassandra? And I say, oh, I mean, who knows? Nobody knows what this is worth. It's better if you can obtain it at auction um, because that's transparent. If you want to buy it privately and that's the only way to obtain it, then it's going to come down to what, what are you willing to pay? You know, but it, it's it's really hard to know that you paid the correct price when you're buying something absolutely unique in a private setting. It's it's very difficult. So that that's my number one advice is to think about what the item is. Um, if somebody is offering you an item with a specific asking price ask for the justification. Like, how did you price this? What makes you think it's worth 2 million or 10 million or 50 million or whatever it is? Can you give me some comparables? Can you walk me through how you came up with this number? That's going to be really telling. If somebody who's really good may be able to say, well, okay, I'm selling you this object and we're asking $10 million. Why do I think it's worth $10 million? Well, here's this other object that has, it's not the same, but it has a similar historic importance, similar cultural relevance. It's as rare, it's blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, if you believe that the object that you are considering for purchase is of equal historic cultural significance to the other then then you may buy that number but i would always say never go into a transaction saying i want to spend this much money and always ask for a justification um of price for something that's super super unusual and rare yeah this is gold gold advice for any of our listeners out there thinking of starting their own artifact type DAO. I've noticed it myself. There's been a huge amount of these sort of DAOs popping up recently, uh, probably due to the rise and fall of Constitution DAO and all of the attention they received. 
But uh, what's often lost is the intricacies behind actually executing a successful auction. Uh, and there are a lot of mistakes made by Constitution DAO that other uh, auction artifact type DAOs can learn from. So this is really, really useful information for, for all those people. Sort of pivoting, Sotheby's has been at the forefront with their interactions with DAOs and Web3. I wanted to ask you, Cassandra, where do you foresee the relationship of auction houses and NFTs existing in the near future? Sure. Um, yeah, we really jumped on this very quickly. And what I'm, what I'm really proud of is the diversity of different kinds of NFTs that we do. I mean, it's not just art, um, science, uh, different types of historic artifacts. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think that NFTs are just art. It, 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 there's still a lot of confusion in the marketplace and just kind of like the general public as to what an NFT is. Um, and I think many people don't realize that, it, that like the NFT itself isn't worth anything. It's that the reference the material that's referenced by the NFT is really what makes it non-fungible um, and interesting, right? Like you wouldn't buy an empty NFT. Um, and so I think it's really exciting to think about how that can expand what we sell, how we sell things. There are all sorts of different applications for NFTs, recording provenance and tracking, tracking that sort of thing. Um, one really exciting application that I will be using NFTs for is in the space exploration field, actually. Um, one really tricky thing, and we, we touched on this earlier, is for flown artifacts. And if if you want to be able to buy a flown artifact, you have to buy it from an astronaut. And then you have to be able to prove it. And so the way this was done was the astronaut would take a Sharpie and actually write on the object, you know, flown to the moon on Apollo 11. The problem with the Sharpie is it's not archival. It will actually degrade the artifact over time. And in 50 hundred years, what you're going to see is kind of like an acidic hole uh, where the words were written and where that Sharpie had touched the artifact. So that's not great for many reasons, right? So the, the astronaut needs to mark the artifact, but then they also write a provenance letter, you know, saying I, whoever, you know, Jim Lovell, Buzz Aldrin, Al Warden, whoever, uh, use this object on my mission and this is what the object did it's like a whole letter kind of explaining the history but it certifies that it came from them there are quite a number of objects that were sold at auctions back in the 90s where nobody was thinking about documenting provenance they were just like oh this is cool let's sell it and those people have the people who bought them or maybe their kids have come back to me and I can't sell any of these things, even though I can look at them and know, yeah, yeah, this was probably flown, but because I don't have the documentation to prove that it came from this astronaut, like maybe they lost the letter, maybe the astronaut didn't write it. There's no way for me to prove a hundred percent to a buyer that it did fly. So what I'm going to be doing when I sell things for astronauts going forward, instead of making them write on these objects with a Sharpie, is we're going to be minting NFTs to pair with those physical objects, doing um, like a super high res kind of scan of the object, minting that as an NFT, entering in all the metadata, like all the provenance information, all of the history, having the astronaut themselves mint that NFT and so that information is all recorded on chain. It's there forever. Then you can go home and you physical object. And then if you want to sell it again, 
it has to be sold with that NFT because that is the proof of ownership, the proof of history, the proof of authenticity. And that, you know, in the specific area of space collecting is revolutionary. It's huge. Um, it actually will help better ensure the, um, the survival of these artifacts. Uh, and then th this can go on to be applied to other items where the value is derived from the provenance. Um, you know, think of back in the early 90s, late 80s, we sold Jackie O's fake plastic pearls for $18,000. The person who buys those pearls, they want to go sell them, you know, 30 years later. How can they prove that they didn't swap them out for some other pair of plastic pearls, right? Like, how, how can you do that? Well, if you do these kind of high-res scans that we do and mint them as NFTs, that ownership and provenance is recorded on chain. And then, you know, if somebody's kids or grandkids inherits them, they don't lose value because of that. So I think that that is something that will really revolutionize the entire art industry is tracking this ownership, provenance, recording authenticity of certain items. And, and that's like an area that I personally am pushing into with the business. Um, but of course, everybody, you know, everybody in the world is interested in, in selling NFTs. <laughs> this is, I, I, I kind of joke now that 90% of my meetings are meetings with people who want to sell NFTs or, or want to get into developing NFTs. So it's, um, it's really exciting, though I think that kind of like everything else in the auction business, maybe 1% of what I'm offered is actually has a you know collectible value and i think it's similar with nfts at least right now is um uh, there are a lot of projects out there and the projects that are really valuable and will have a sustainable value that's a much smaller percentage um but yes yeah, sotheby's is very dedicated to this space we invested in a company um, called Serotonin, which is like an NFT marketing firm, and then a business um, called Mojito, uh, where we actually, we, we do the minting and um, writing of the smart contracts, all of that. We've built out our own proprietary platform to sell NFTs you know, the Sotheby's metaverse. So we've, uh, we have fully um, stepped into that world in a way that is not dipping our toes, but we've really just jumped in. So it's, it's an exciting and exhausting time <laughs> to, to be at Sotheby's. So what I think is so cool about the whole uh, creating an NFT, which is sort of a digital manifestation of the actual physical artifact is that if the physical artifact, for whatever horrendous reason, gets destroyed or damaged, at least you have this digital manifestation of it that will live on forever, right, on the blockchain. And I think that's a really cool sort of aspect and just a good safety measure. Because if the actual physical artifact is destroyed, at least some version of it will live on. And that's a piece of history in and of itself. But what to me is more exciting maybe for uh, the world of auction houses is I personally think what NFTs did for digital art, DAOs will do for physical art. And that's because there's a new player in town, right? DAOs. And they're just everyday people. And what they represent is a new competitor in an industry that might previously have been filled by mega wealthy sort of maybe boomer types and i'm sure they're younger folks as well uh, purchasing but i think the interesting effect will be that prices are going to go up for pieces of art that maybe never even mattered before right because the demand profile for art is going to change dramatically because you know now you have a new sort of young meme fueled player that has entered the game and it's just 
uh, a collective uh, community of just young people that are excited to get into this whole world of, of like auction houses and art. But big pivot here. Cassandra, you have a really cool job because the work you do connects you to history in, I think, a direct and maybe intimate way. And what's so cool to me is that sometimes it gives you the opportunity to meet genuine figures of history. So you've met Buzz Aldrin, which is mind-blowing. What's he like? Uh, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, I've met Buzz and several other astronauts. Um, the, the first time I spoke to Buzz, he just called me on the phone. Uh, and I normally don't answer my phone at work. Just everything goes to voicemail around to checking my voicemails. And for some reason, this the phone was ringing and I just felt this weird impulse to answer it. Totally unusual for me. And I answered it and... I knew instantly who it was because he has such a like an unrecognizable voice. Cassandra, yes. He goes, "This is Buzz Aldrin." I said, "Oh shit!" I actually said, "Oh shit!" <laughs> Just sat down in my chair, um, and that was kind of the beginning of many conversations and, and uh, a really interesting relationship. And he's somebody that I have so much respect for. You know, I'm not sure how many people realize this, but Buzz has a PhD in aerospace engineering from MIT. The lunar orbit rendezvous technique that we use to land on the moon was the subject of his, you know, doctoral dissertation. Like he wrote about that way before we did that technique. I mean, he is somebody who has such a deep scientific understanding of these missions and how to make them possible. Uh, I think his kind of uh, public persona tends to take over because he is also a really big personality. Um, but he's, he's really a brilliant person. Um, and that, that I think was really his mind can go in so many different directions and he can really get into the nitty gritties. I mean, we had a whole conversation about watches and like the inner workings of some specific watches and, and all sorts of different things. And, um, you know, I think that he's just an amazing person and, uh, you know, there, there are other things, you know, I think a lot of people, most people don't realize that, Neil and Buzz almost died on the lunar surface and Buzz actually like saved them. So there was this switch, the circuit breaker switch that had broken off. This was the switch that you needed to flip in order to fire up the engines and reascend from the lunar surface. And it had broken off and Buzz noticed it on the ground and was like, what's this? What's this thing on the ground? And then, realized that it was like the switch that they needed to get back alive. And luckily, you know, if, if you ever, you can Google these, you can go online and you can find the stowage lists for all of the Apollo missions. And that is a list of every single item that was allowed on board, including the serial number and the part number for these items. And so there were specific pens that they were allowed to take and specific this and that. And, uh, and that like the weights, it, it was because of weight. They had to worry about how much weight they could carry um, and safely reascend. So Buzz had decided he was going to bring his own pen for, for whatever reason, maybe he didn't like the pens, but he kind of smuggled up an extra pen. And if he hadn't done that, they wouldn't have come back because the pens that they were allowed to take up on Apollo 11 were not the right size for the purpose Buzz used them for. What he realized is that you could jam a pen into the slot that the switch had fallen out of. And if you did it just right, you could still power things up. Um, 
And it just so happened that the pen he had smuggled onto the spacecraft fit perfectly into that slot. So he was able to jam that pen in there and get the engine fired up and get them back home. Um, like he, he was that kind of guy, you know, the else, if you've ever seen the EKGs of the Apollo 11 crew, you know, they were, they were all wired up when they launched the rocket. And when they did their moonwalk, they had EKG, you know, heart monitors on the whole time. And if you look at printout from when they launched, you know, Mike Collins and Neil Armstrong, like they're like steady, but they, you could see their hearts were racing. Man, Buzz was just like normal, like not a blip. Like you, you could see that this was the heart of somebody who had prepared their entire life for this moment, was 100% confident that they were going to nail it. Um, and his heart, his heartbeat did not pick up one bit. It was amazing. And it was like that the whole mission, just like steady, steady as a rock, you know? So he's, um, he's just an incredible person, you know? And I, and I, and I've met many other Apollo astronauts, um, Rusty Schwakehart, uh, from Apollo nine. I just love, he's an amazing, amazing person. Um, Fred Hayes from Apollo 13, incredible speaker talking about that mission. I've, I, I've met lots of other guys. Um, you know, Buzz has that kind of larger than, oh, Al, Al Bean, how can I forget Al Bean from Apollo 12, who's a, an incredible artist, uh, fantastic fellow. But, you know, they're all, what I think is so interesting is they were, regular people you know i mean they had they were regular were also extraordinary um not because they came from fancy backgrounds or or anything like that you know a lot of them were navy or army or um civilians some of them um but they set out to do something extraordinary they became extraordinary um and i think that was that was also really hard on the apollo astronauts and, and that they were prepared to risk their lives but weren't prepared to become rock stars and they were bigger than rock stars i mean there is nobody in human history before them or after them that will accomplish something like they did. So you can imagine the psychological toll that would take on somebody who's not prepared for it. Um, so that, that's another layer I'd add to the impact that this had on, on the astronauts. And, and kind of how incredible it's been for me to be able to have conversations with so many of them where I'm like, wow, you're, you're like a normal dude, except that you walked on the moon, you know? Um, so I still kind of can't believe this, you know, I mean, my dream as a kid was to be an astronaut and there's never never in a million years would have ever guessed that I would be doing this for a living or that I would meet astronauts or talk to astronauts or that they would have my phone number and give me a call. I mean, it's just surreal. It's so surreal. That is just awesome. And I'm a bit jealous, you know, I'd like to have a couple astronauts numbers in my phone, but I suppose if Moondow does send someone to space, that that person would be a astronaut. So that wouldn't be too bad either. So we've hit the one hour and 15 minute mark. Out of respect of your time, Cassandra, we won't keep you any longer. Um, just to put a button on things, could you give a 30 second shout out to our community at Moondow? Yeah, happy to, to, to give a shout out to everybody at Moondow. I'm so impressed, so impressed by what this community has accomplished in such a short time. And, um, you know, as I was saying earlier, I love this mission. Space is for everyone. I think that was the 
the original intent of um, you know the the missions and the Apollo astronauts is it's space for all. So it's really exciting to see this coming together, and I I can't wait to see you guys make history, uh, and and get out there and go into space. So exciting times. Yeah, couldn't say any it any better. Um, thank you so much, Cassandra. Really, really appreciate this, and uh, I'm so excited for things going forward. It's my pleasure. Thank you both. Uh, it's really, really been nice talking to you both. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the To the Moon podcast. You can find our website at moondow.com or check out our Twitter at officialmoondow, where you can get the link to our Discord and join the community.